The battle of Britain is about to begin. Welcome back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. How do you like the new music? It's angry. It's edgy. Kind of like Chris on being locked down in Michigan for the last three months. Hey, man. I t- like I said, it's I've been I've been ducking them drones. Gretchen, Gretchen is definitely <laughs> they slipping. They can't man. catch us all. <laughs> they cannot catch us all. She ain't are that you, sharp. Are you allowed to ride in a boat yet? So yeah. we are allowed to ride in a boat. We are. We are because her <laughs> husband wanted to ride in his boat. <laughs> Well, welcome back, everybody, to Coronavirus episode number 235. I, I, I don't know, wherever we are. Hey, we're back, and we're going to talk about a couple Blood Red Skies things, and then we're going to shift fire uh, back to a leader series game and talk a little bit about Zero Leader. But first, Flightline, what has everybody been working on? I know for me, it's been Vietnam miniatures. Yeah, that's right. Priming and getting my Vietnam guys ready. What about you guys? I've got my airbrush station completely in, and it is ventilated, and I'm going to start doing some painting tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, and so thanks to Steve Toth thing. asking, are you going to blow yourself up if you spray aerosols? I know. I was, I was like, he had, to, he had to totally kill your buzz that you're all happy that you had this, and you still can't spray aerosols. Is that, uh, is that an aerosol-rated fan there? <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Steve. We'll get to you next week, you jerk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I checked to see if the Air and Space Museum was open before I yeah. went to Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Screw you, buddy. Those, okay. those build photos look pretty impressive. I was that, that was really nice, dude. It was super easy. I was like dreading like cutting a hole through the wall and through the siding, but it was like you know four inch hole saw. It was like zoop. Okay, take 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 the wadding out of the wall. Zoop. <laughs> there's the outside wall. Oh, there's the freaking there's the freaking you know the 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 freaking it, siding. It isn't hard to do. It's just hard no, to do right. I used no, the exactly the saying on the side of the woodworker's barn in Mississippi. Measure once. Cuss twice. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. Yep. But anyway, what I else highly, is... highly recommend that for anybody who's doing airbrushing. It is, if you've got a permanent space, you know, just a little dryer vent and then you can, you just turn it on, turn it off. They've got baffles that go in there now. So no little critters and no little air blows in there. It is so nice. I, I would accept setup. my mom's basement is concrete, so I can't exactly oh. drill through the wall. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I have a similar setup, but I just crack a window and stick it out. But of course, it doesn't get to like, you know, a frozen hellscape here like it does where you live in the wintertime. Exactly. So. That was a problem. I was having to like shove towels, you know, like around the vent and everything. And it was just like, no, I'm just going to cut a hole with a baffle. It'll be done in freaking 30 Genius. minutes. Yep. Genius. Well, Brett, what have you been working on? Spitfires. Uh, you know, I've been spending a lot of time on the campaign thing, so that's really cut into the hobby time. But I have been working for the past few days off and on just little bits on those Spitfires for Gavin, and I am nearly done. Uh, decals are done as of today. I need to hit them with another dose of some... Uh, wait, 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 wait. Well, this project has changed. This this was Gavin painting Gavin's. Yeah, he, he didn't want to mess with the, uh, he did a little bit of the painting, but he didn't want to mess with the decal. So I was like, all right, buddy, I'll, I'll take care of that. <laughs> so, nice yeah. work. Just enabling in there. 
Yeah, yeah. So, uh, but it's been fun. I, it's the first time I've done any RAF planes, so I've really, you know, it's kind of a little bit of different exercise, different colors and did stuff. Did you use the crappy Warlord decals or did you use uh, miscellaneous minis? No, Kevin got me some Squadron 19 mini uh, decals. Oh, nice. So, so nice. yeah, I'm, I'm doing uh, number 19 Squadron, Battle of Britain time frame, so I'll have Score. pictures up That's real good. soon. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, let's move over to the Intel update. Yeah, yeah, Intel. Uh, so we could talk about the release schedule and, you know, what we've seen is coming out. Well, I'm sorry, Warlord Games, your release schedule. It's an absolute shit show right now. Does anyone want to use a term other than shit show to describe the release schedule? Cluster yeah. F. <laughs> we can say that, cluster fuck. It's, it's fucked seven ways to Sunday. Six ways somebody said, I don't know, whatever the, whatever the saying is. Uh, yeah. So if anyone is putting anything in any stock said by anybody about the Warlord release schedule, you know, it's, it's kind of like, do you wear a mask or not? You can find something on the internet that will, that will counterbalance it. Um, I don't even think John Russell knows what's going on. Yeah, what a schedule. <laughs> I, so, so I'm going to jokingly, and, and I'm not being serious here, Ken, so please don't kick me out of the ready room. I'm going to blame Ken Nat because I thought I knew what the release schedule was. We had just done a, a live stream roundtable with a number of the Warlord guys, and their marketing team had laid their grand plan out. And then come, Ken comes up and goes, uh, yeah, I, I talked to some guys, and that's actually not going to happen. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm back at square one. I don't, I don't know what's getting delivered next. I know what all the grand, grandiose ideas are. But uh, I, yeah, for all I know, we could see a, a box of MiG-21s next. <laughs> and they released the Midway starter set after that. I don't know. Chris Brett, any intel on, on your end from that? No, I just I need to know which planes I need to put in the queue next for uh, September because I've got a bunch of Stalingrad stuff I was thinking I needed to paint next. Should I paint Vietnam stuff? I mean, what? yeah, yeah. I, I've for September I have given up on on doing anything other than some Pacific, a lot of Malta, and maybe playing some Vietnam. So I'd kick around some Vietnam stuff because at least we could have a few painted things by September. But we certainly also don't have time to, to order it because uh, AIM is still way, way backlogged, which is good. I'm glad that he's making money hand over fist on everyone's resin addiction. Um, but uh, I, th I think September for Gathering of Eagles is going to be pretty Malta heavy. So the good news is we have those airplanes. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah, I can I always throw in a few more JU-88s, right? <laughs> yeah, Maybe or some, if there's another squadron of 109s that you've missed somehow in your, oh yeah, in your yeah. 109 production. I have uh, some BF 109Fs that need to be painted. Good point. So I'll do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So why don't you get right on that and paint up your seventh squadron of 109s or whatever we're on? And no, Chris, I don't want to see any more C202s. You can take those and you know where you can squarely shove those things. So you love those. Actually, Almost I do. Almost as I, much I, as you I, love the SM79s. Oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll be Torpedoes honest. I love, like like you said, I, lo I love the models. I, I love the card of the 202. Andy Chambers, I'm still going to choke you the next time I meet you uh, for undercosting that thing so much because it handed my ass to me uh, for, uh, for playing the multi scenarios, but no, I'm, I'm excited to do that. So, so we'll kind of cover it now in the Intel update. Gathering of Eagles is still on. Nobody has shut us down. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's talk about Labor Day weekend, September four, five, six in Indianapolis. Um, we are capped at a number of people. So between vendors, supporters, staff, 
Uh, I got to kind of leave five, ten slots there for people. We really only have 40 gaming slots, 40 attendees that aren't uh, carrying a load somewhere, either as a vendor or as a uh, volunteer. Um, so please sign up. Uh, and if things change and they open up to phase five is what they're supposed to be in, they're in four and a half. I, I can't figure out Indiana's phases, whatever. Um, if we can open it up to have more people, we'll take more listings. Um, but right now when registration is closed, registration is closed. Um, we still have plenty of room, so don't worry. Uh, hotel rates have dropped. The, uh, the hotel came back and said, Hey, by the way, uh, Hilton just adjusted their rates, uh, so now your deal is $89 a night. So I, I cried myself to sleep with the fact that we're actually saving a few bucks there. Um, but we'll have plenty of room. It will still be mask-on gaming. Uh, the bar probably will not be open. Uh, yes, I'm sure someone can afford a cooler of beer. Uh, we'll figure a lot of these things out. The point is, let's all get together. Let's safely have some fun. Uh, let's be smart about it. We'll have plenty of hand sanitizer and everything else we need. But let's uh, let's get together, be social, uh, and do some Blood Red Skies and some other gaming. Because as we've talked to some of the local indie gamers, uh, they haven't had a chance to play Battletech, to play Horus Heresy. Uh, I don't want to see any 40k tables there because if I have there, to see there, the town, I'll just I'll cry. No. If, <laughs> if you want to play, if you want to play 40k, you can play any army except Tau. I just don't want to see Tau. <laughs> yeah, I talked to world famous Ryan Kimmel tonight, and he is going to bring some of his absolutely badass Adepticon Horus Heresy terrain and some of his brand new BattleTech vintage terrain um, up to the gaming center. For I've us got an entire city for my BattleTech. I can my battle droids are going to kill everything. It's awesome. <laughs> No, I love Battletech, so I'm going to hate you, Ryan, yeah. for showing up and getting hey, me into just a, another game. It, it's just ship, it's shipping right now. Shut up. So I don't need any more Kickstarters. We just got the notification that it shipped for oh. the Kickstarter. We've only been well, waiting good. a year and a half. Well, so, yeah. I'll, I'll live vicariously through you all. Yeah. I'll take a look and go, wow, those miniatures yeah. look really nice, and I'm glad I don't have any of them. So <laughs> I'll cry myself to sleep with all the resin that I don't have. All right, let's uh, move on from Intel update, unless anyone has any news that they can actually put any stock in. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> so we'll just go on from the release schedule and let's go to the hangar. What new gear have we seen out there? What new mats, rulers, uh, paints, uh, what all is going on out there? One thing I did want to chime in on, I've been a big fan of the Jeffrey Cox books um, that are done by Osprey. They're novels that have been put out. He's got one on the Java Sea. He's got one on the Guadalcanal, um, which both the books are absolutely amazing. If you really want a deep nose dive into Navy tactics, what would the what the surface Navy was doing, what the air combat was like. He just came out with a second part of the Solomon Island series. It's called Blazing Star Setting Sun. Have not read it yet. Just downloaded it last night. Um, it's getting four and a half stars on Amazon. His book her. He's a, a lawyer out of, um, I want to say Indianapolis, uh, found him through World War II podcast. And that's how I ended up reading his first book. But this is a guy, he wasn't a professional author, but he was a lawyer. So he likes to write. But the deep dive that he does into tactics and everything else, his writing style is amazing. The, the stuff that he brings out has been really, really neat. So if you're into the Solomon Island campaign and you're looking for something to read right now, highly recommend getting that that new book. The first one that he did in the series was Morning Star, Midnight Sun. And that's the first of the Solomon Island series. And the new one is Blazing Star, Setting Sun. That's awesome. You, you were talking about a book and it made, made me remember something I saw Andy Chambers posted on Facebook about uh, pre-order for the Battle 2020 special. I apparently, so I've never heard of it, but apparently Battle 
was a World War II, very popular World War II graphic novel series in England. And they're, uh, as part of the, uh, I guess, 80th anniversary of uh, Battle of Britain, they're doing a uh, special where it's got some really cool uh, cover art. And then it's a, a compilation of a bunch of the stories. And uh, so I, I went on their website. I can't recall the website, but there's a link. Um, my goodness, I don't have it in front of me. But uh, on the Ready Room, Andy Chambers posted a link that takes you right to it. And they have um, a regular edition that you could order or a special edition. It has a nice special uh, Battle of Britain cover on it. And it's like 10 bucks. So I went ahead and ordered that. And I was on the main site. I found another... Uh, I guess, collection of artwork and stories and stuff that are actually true stories from the Battle of Britain. And it's all about, um, I guess, Spitfire pilots and some of the stuff they did. And, uh, but it's told in a graphic novel, uh, setting. So anyway, I, they were super cheap and I grabbed them both. So, uh, I'm looking forward to those coming. I think it's not available until September, but I went ahead and placed my order. Yeah. It's there under treasury of British comics.com. Uh, yeah, or you can just follow the link that Andy put inside his post because <laughs> it'll take you to the the uh, uh, the main site for 2000 AD, which has obviously uh, got a lot of different stuff. Uh, and then they are going to cover the actual uh, episode or the actual uh, sp- standard and special edition uh, for Battle. And it looks pretty cool. I have to admit, uh, I, I kind of want to pick up uh, the special edition. So I think it's going to be interesting. And it's, and it's funny to see who has written some of the stuff that's in there. So I think it's going to be uh, pretty interesting. I, I'm still trying to figure out how, how I feel about Dan Abnett uh, writing historical stuff like that. I'm not sure if it's going to be bolter porn, but with uh, hurricanes and spitfires. Um, but I, I think he'll do an if impressive it's Dan job. Dan Abnett, I'm reading it. Uh, you, you're such a fanboy. Uh, dude, so. I just read Saturnine on Horace Heresy. I was just, I, I'm just flabbergasted. The last freaking three chapters in it, I was just blown away. That guy can write. Boring. No, actually, I, I actually <laughs> like his writing. I just, I have I had zero time for Horace Heresy stuff, and so I just haven't read any of it. Yeah, so I'm way behind in my reading, but whatever. I'll get to that <laughs> when we start traveling again, and I have time stuck in a freaking airplane. Uh, then, then we'll get to all that. So it's one of those things. Well, what else uh, has anyone seen? I know some new decals have been seen in the ready room. Brett, uh, can you tell us anything about those? Oh yeah, so uh, there's a guy I think out of France. Uh, let's see. His name is Mark. He is from France. Sorry. Old joke. No one gets it. Forgive me. I may mispronounce his last name, but Mark Van Kampen Hoot. And uh, he apparently has a whole bunch of World War II decals for 1 to 200 scale. I saw it in Ready Room because he posted some pictures of PE2 decals he has. And he said in his message, hey, uh, PM me and I'll let you know all the stuff I have. And I guess they look reasonably affordable and the ship he'll ship wherever and takes him a little while to get them to you but uh could be a nice source for additional decals i reached out to him to see if we could you know get a little bit more details to talk about what his offerings are and i haven't heard back yet but you know time uh, time differences and everything probably is a big part of that but uh maybe we'll hear back from mark and see what what all he has but those pe2 proofs that are on ready room look pretty sweet it looks like some people have ordered some yeah, absolutely. It does look pretty cool. I'm uh, I'm pretty excited, even though I can't stand the Soviets and whatever, boring. Uh, but yeah, no, I think it looks good, and I'm uh, excited to see how all those get uh, get decaled out because it looks like he has a lot of custom stuff he's worked out in very fine detail. Um, so I think that's going to be pretty neat to add. 
I've been seeing a lot of stuff on Ready Room lately. I think it's just a consequence of this lockdown. Maybe like me, folks are having a lot of extra time on their hands to uh, do some stuff with the hobby that they might not have otherwise had time to do. But have you guys seen this ROC or Rock? I'm not sure how you pronounce it, if it's an accurate uh, or an initialism or an acronym. But uh, looks like they're going to be printing some models we otherwise can't get straight from from Morlord. So. Well, I'm I'm glad you this? called them models we can't get because I keep teasing Richard. I'm like, congratulations on printing models I don't want. I don't need a gladiator. I don't need a CR forty two. No, there's there's some impressive stuff, and he's had a a bunch of different modelers do work uh, for them. Uh, so you may recognize some of the aircraft that are in there that uh, Steve Toth has done. Uh, there's a couple other modelers that have worked with them, so that their their files are available either as an STL download uh, or as a printed model. So I yeah, think that that's was, a, that's that a was cool the big way thing that they were they were getting you know giving out the STLs. That was just freaking. That's amazing. That's good for the community. Yeah, I think it's really cool. good. I I, I kind of chuckle because uh, like a lot of things with 3D printing, and Chris, you've obviously fooled with it a lot. It's, it's one of those things that sometimes it seems a lot better when you when you think you know what you're going to get, then you get it and you go, man, it's still just not the detail of resin. You know, it's it's not not near as nice, but it certainly makes a great proxy to figure out how things work on the table. Yeah, there's there's a lot of challenges with printing. So I, 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 I advise anybody that wants to get into the printing end of it, do a lot of research before you invest in anything. Because there's just so much stuff out there and, and there's just do your research because a lot of I think most people that go into printing, whatever they buy as their first printing setup, they get rid of it after a couple of weeks if they're serious about printing and get something else. So. It's, it's kind of funny. So my buddy Mac uh, didn't get rid of his first one, but it's become his terrain printer. So that's, that's what mine what is. He, I, I he, love my Ender, but it, it, I can't print anything one two hundred no, scale. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's you just can't. Well, you just can't do the fine detail that you'd need. And then once again, resin printing is a hazmat and <laughs> and wonderful art in, unto itself. We can ask it Ryan is. about that. It is that drama. Uh, but, you know, I think a lot of guys have taken their their first gen printer or their first uh, printer they've experimented with. And it's now their standard terrain printer that they can you know print off a bunch of stuff for 40K, 30K, uh, Judge Dredd, any one of those, any one of those game systems with pretty easily. Man, speaking about flexing some hobby muscles, you know, there's some guys that are posting some stuff on Ready Room that deserve a special, a special call out because I think what they're doing is pretty cool. Have you, you guys see uh, Jordan Cairns, Mistle 4, the... Uh, it's like the 262 slinging the uh, JU-287. Yeah, yeah a, I got a laugh. I don't remember if it was you or Steve or who asked, hey, man, is that the Glide Bomb card? <laughs> yeah, I, I figured there's got to be some mechanic where that's a thing, right? I don't know about I don't know what Glide Bomb use is. The, I guess you could use the Glide Bomb card on it. I guess that actually would work. Yeah, it sounds like They've got one of those at Wright-Patterson as a, as a mock-up that was brought back over. It's like pieces of one that they've reassembled that, that are sitting there by the JU-88. That's what's amazing about this hobby when people start doing stuff. And it's one of the things Steve and I were just talking about the other night that we hope people get out of this campaign system when we get it out there for you is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing things that I've never even heard of before. And it just causes a lot of like, oh, man, I got to go look that up. That's really cool. I want to read about that, you know. So, so these little instances, whether it's through Ready Room or some other thing you read somewhere, these some of these stories are stranger than fiction. Some of the weapon systems that were employed, some of the... the heroic deeds and the tragedies it's all crazy man it's this hobby is nuts outside of just the game piece the stuff i think in my own uh, my own experience already just learning these little stories and finding out these things i never would have had any reason to figure out otherwise so it's pretty cool 
well, I remember as a kid having one of the big you know, World War II aircraft source books and thinking that I knew a lot about World War II aircraft. You know, I get this, I think I was you know, 10 or 11 uh, when I was given the book and digging through and finding models of bombers and fighters and things that I never even knew existed because they weren't in any of the movies. They weren't in any of the common literature. They weren't in even any of the newsreels, you know, and you, and you get to some really obscure aircraft and you're like, holy crap, I never even knew they made 200 of that bomber, but it, it never really, you know, made the press releases. Oh, man, I'm not done. Did you see Martin Wil- Wilson's Dudes and Devastators, I'm going to call it? <laughs> yeah, so, so there's there. yet again another level of detail where I, I look and I go, wow, that's impressive. Uh, three feet rule, asshole. <laughs> and I love his work. I just I just have to laugh. I'm like, holy cow, that's, I, I don't have the patience. But I, I was just looking at it right here. You'd, you'd mentioned it, and I'm like, holy cow. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. I, you know, that must have taken... I'm not even sure how he did it. He's got to tell us what he did there. It sounds like he sculpted the guys and just got them in there somehow. But uh, that's pretty cool. And then uh, uh, Artem Levikov has that 1 to 12, uh, I think it's a 1 to 1200 Yorktown he was showing. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Chris, did you see it? It it looks nice. Yes, it's it's his carrier is a target. It's twice the size of the targets we've been using. It's It's actually from a kit. And it has planes on the deck and everything. It's amazing. Yep. So, it does really look cool. good. I mean, those planes were really neat. <laughs> yeah. So I like his pictures too, because I think he did a picture. It looks like it's POV from the, uh, from a dive bomber yeah. as it's approaching or something. You know? <laughs> Which is kind of funny. So uh, it, 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 it looks really cool. I like it. And I we just want to again, want people to you know see how it plays. Um, because it's one of the questions we have is, you know, what scale can we make things that they look really cool and they don't unbalance the game as some dude flies along the board edge and comes out of high cover? Yeah, it's uh, but still you know what I'm be saying. Practical. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm still confident that one to twenty four hundred is is a, a nearly ideal scale. Uh, not not to take anything away from from Artem's model, and, and he's going to have lots of fun with it. It's awesome. I, I think once you start getting multiple targets and things like that, you might have to start considering smaller targets. But hey, that. I, I think it's going to be great. Awesome. I, it, it's making a case for me for 1 to 1,200. And, and I guess I'll I'll take the step there and say, after watching people playing Victory at Sea at Twisted Lords, I am actually stepping a little bit up from uh, 1 2400th to 1 1800th and saying that's that's a real good compromise, that you still have a lot of detail there, uh, but, you, but you're getting a little bit larger models, so you're, getting a, you're not feeling like you're bombing a postage stamp. But at the end of the day... It's your game, man. Figure out, figure out what right. you want. If you want the one two hundredth table dominating <laughs> hornet that we used at uh, at Twisted Lords, do that too. Have fun with that. <laughs> right? Yeah, well, it all look really good, and folks have been busy out there. It's it's cool to see all the different things folks have been working on. Uh, Steve and I have been working real hard on the campaign thing, and uh, we may have a printable draft to start uh, the whole you know red pen process here real soon. You know, and I mean soon, like in the next couple weeks. And uh, anyway, a lot of folks have contributed and done a lot of hard work. I can't say enough about uh, Leslie Mitchell's work on the uh, aircraft piece. I know you guys had a big part in that, too. Uh, Roger Garish has done a lot of work in kind of reviewing what we call our aircraft availability charts. Because the whole idea with this thing is to give folks who use it, you know, a lot of choice and variety. So anyway, a lot of that stuff kind of needed to be looked over by people who know a lot more about these things than me. Because, uh, you know, trying to cover as many factions as we can and all that stuff. So a lot of hard work from others 
is also uh, contributing to make this thing pretty cool. So hopefully we'll see something for that for you guys here real soon. And uh, speaking of campaigns, man, there's that whole Battle of Britain 80 campaign going on on Ready Room. Have you seen that? It's a constant post about games. There's a there's a campaign. Is Ken running that? Yeah. Should I be paying attention? <laughs> yeah, I've been ignoring it because I haven't been playing, and so I'm like, yeah. I don't want to. I don't even want to look at all these people and their battle reports of the fun they're having, and, and I can't and I, say much. Oh but. man, Steve and I so want to play in it, and we so could have because that was the that's where we were really when we were playing our campaign. But we're all of our time together now is crunching this campaign thing, so we haven't been able to play. But soon, and I don't think we'll get to join Ken's campaign. But yeah. uh, you know, we just missed it, unfortunately. But it looks like fun. Great pictures out there. Some battle reports and stuff showing up on the ready room that look really cool. Absolutely. Making me want to go. And you know those, um, oh gosh, pipe cleaner, f- smoke trail things. Yeah. <laughs> I, have a bag of, I have a bag of pipe cleaners and I got to get busy, man, because I see those on those, on those battle reports. Man, it's so cool. I've got to make some of those for our next game. Yeah, yeah. That, that was the uh, frustrating thing is to see those and then uh, be playing at Twisted Lords and go, you know, I probably should have taken the 10 minutes that it makes, takes to make a couple of those to, just to, for people to be able to take photos of the aircraft getting shot down and stuff like that. That'd be pretty cool. That's awesome. Well, that's pretty much all I have from things I you know, noticed that really caught my eye on Ready Room re- recently. Well, cool. Let's take a break. And when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the next game in the DVG Leader series, Zero Leader. Back to the Lead Pursuit Podcast. Tonight, we're leaving Blood Red Skies again. I know, we're, we're a terrible Blood Red Skies podcast. Actually, that's why we changed our, our music and changed our theme. We're an aerial wargaming podcast. We're going to talk about another one of the Leader series. We're going to talk about Zero Leader. And if you haven't heard about it, then apparently you've lived under a rock or aren't following anything involving Danvers and games. But tonight, we're going to talk with Chuck Siegert, who's the designer of this game. Chuck, how are you doing tonight? I am doing excellent, Doug. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. Absolutely. We've also got Chris and Brett on, and I'll let them check in with you all. Hey, guys. What's up, guys? Apparently, they let Chris out of the state of Michigan again, and he's now back and planning to leave yet again another time. Yes, I am. (laughs) So how's a coronavirus lockdown working for everybody? You guys all surviving with your war games? I've been sneaking by Gretchen's drones pretty regularly, so um, she's getting a little slow on the uptake, I think. I'm so ready for a road trip or something, just to see something, get, get out of the house. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't have that problem. Oklahoma City was wonderful, and I didn't lick any doorknobs. So, uh, knock on wood. So far, a week later, I'm I'm not hacking and coughing. But that was a that was a good time. Uh, Chuck, we're going to jump straight in. So, so zero leader, your first commercial game design project. How the heck did you end up doing that? Well, it was pretty simple. Um, I had played Corsair Leader. I was a big Kickstarter in it. I fly an F4F much better than anybody else flies an F4F. Um, and through that, I got to meet Kevin and Sarah, and we did a lot of talking, and I was on the verge of retiring at that point. So I told them, hey, you know, I want to do Corsair Leader, but I want to look at it from the Japanese side. I want to do Zero Leader. 
but I want to make it, there's some things that I felt that I could change in Corsair Leader, and I wanted to do those types of things uh, with a different game. So it, it's been a blast so far. Well, I have to kind of hone in on one point there because, you know, we interviewed Kevin and Sarah and they're thoroughly boring individuals. I mean, it was no fun interview. Really, really hated every minute of it. Uh, no, they were great to talk to. But uh, it's been interesting to work with both Kevin and to work with Dan. And I I find it interesting where your project kind of originated. So uh, most of your pitch was to Kevin, I take it, rather than, than to Dan as to what you wanted to change. That is correct. I mean... Pretty much Dan's been in the background, um, just uh, taking little snipes at me. <laughs> so that's exactly what I was going to I was gonna yep. bring up. And so Dan's going to, if he listens to this podcast, is going to laugh because I'm going to relate the story that um, I have learned working with Dan and Kevin is that if I have a really good idea that I think is a good idea, I float it to Kevin first. <laughs> and then I let Dan pick it apart and tell me how it's not going to work seven different ways to Sunday. Um, so I, that way I save myself the public embarrassment of the email chain where in front of Kevin, he, he skewers my idea and tells me it's the worst ever. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. I, you know, I deal with Kevin and him and I come up with uh, what we think is a really good idea. And then the next time I'm talking to him, he's like, well, Dan says we should do this or do that. And we both kind of laugh. But um, pretty much Dan has been on board from the get-go. He's, uh, from everything that Kevin has said, I haven't spoken directly to Dan about it. But uh, from everything Kevin and Sarah have been telling me, he's pretty excited and very interested in the game. So uh, I take that as a plus. Yeah, I think everybody who's been following it uh, as well, on the outside, not on the uh, not in the super secret uh, halls that has all the information, has at least been interested. And you know, talking to Chris and Brett, we uh, we both find it interesting and, and sometimes a little frustrating. Uh, you know, with the leader series that that they are fairly straightforward games once you figure out the system and once you you get over the first hurdle of okay. I've got airplanes and cards, but they've got pilots on the cards, you know, all those, all those different mechanics things. Um, but they're still fun games. Now, the, the funniest part of it is I think you hit on what is one of my most frustrating experiences. Uh, and I've, I've told Dan and Kevin this and we laugh about it. And, and I say, man, the, the airplanes all feel the same, except they, they carry different, different bombs and some of them can't use specific bombs, but man, all the airplanes feel the same. Uh, so I hear you had that same problem. <laughs> well, exactly. That was one of the first things I told Kevin was I wanted it to, to feel different when you're flying an A6M20 versus a Betty. Um, Corsair Leader had the maneuver and dogfighting um, situation in it, so that is pretty cool. But I, with the same kind of pilot, an F4F and an F4U were exactly the same, and they are not exactly the same. So. I wanted to put a couple of real easy mechanics, not anything that you have to pull out a spreadsheet and figure out all this different stuff, but a couple real easy mechanics that make the aircraft handle completely different and also reflect the fact that a zero with no ceiling fuel tanks, a very light construction, wasn't a very robust aircraft. So with a couple real simple mechanics that I put in there, I was able to separate the aircraft beyond just the pilot separating the aircraft. And I, I think that is a really huge thing, and I enjoy it very much when I play test, but I might be biased. <laughs> you might be a little biased, but that's that's all right. So so spoil it a little bit for us if you can. How 
how do you handle the different traits? Because obviously we're used to blood red skies. So that's very straightforward. You you have actual traits like vulnerable if you're a zero so that you blow up much, much more better when people shoot at you or you're robust if you're a wildcat. Uh, then you've got things like great dive, tight turn, all those different things. How did how did you attack the ability to make airplanes feel different? Well, in keeping with the the leader series, which isn't super one of the great words I learned from Kevin Crunchy, um, zero leader. All of the leader games are not super super crunchy, um, so I didn't want to get into well, you know, like a three two three movement or anything like that. So I basically gave a maneuver factor. So an aircraft is either a zero maneuver, which means you just use the ATA of the pilot uh, in the airplane, or like a zero leader, a zero is plus one. So a zero gets a one added to its dice when it's maneuvering, and it gets a minus one when it's getting maneuvered against. So it gives it a little bit of an advantage over the enemy. Um, an Oscar is probably the most maneuverable aircraft I've got in, which gets two uh, for maneuver, which is, which is wonderful. Um, and, you know, like the bombers are minus one, that type of thing, but late war, I've got other aircraft that are even more maneuverable and stronger, which is a heck of a combination, but they need it because the bandits get worse as we get more into the, into the war. 44 and 45, you run into P-51 Mustangs, P-47 Thunderbolts, and they're piloted by veterans or legendary pilots, and uh, you want to send a letter home quick because you're not sure you're going to make it. Yeah. Well, so let's let's talk through some of the mechanics a little bit, because I've watched some of the other interviews and it's been really good where, uh, especially in either uh, video chat uh, logs or things like that, you've been able to show how some of the cards and some of the the different scenarios and campaigns break out. Uh, but let's let's kind of deal with the two separate mechanics there, because it's it's a very different world for the leader game if you're used to simply moving two chits into an attack range with each other. And obviously, Phantom Leader, uh, Hornet Leader, both have BVR missiles. Uh, the Corsair Leader series doesn't. There's now, at least in Corsair Leader, there were different uh, aggressiveness stances, for lack of a better term, uh, for your dogfighting. Uh, how have you have you been able to break out the, the actual air-to-air skill of the aircraft, the maneuvering and the toughness? How have you, how have you chopped that up a little bit? Okay. Well, what I did is I've got uh, uh, the aircraft card, if you can picture a Corsair leader card, the aircraft cards for zero leader have some extra buttons on the dashboard. One of them. Oh, is yes. I, I noticed that when I looked at some of the uh, some of the, the leaks, I was like, huh, I wonder what those are. And of course, you know, he's playing a little coy and didn't provide a legend on the bottom to tell us what they are. <laughs> you know, you don't want to give the ending to the book yeah. before you, anybody has read it. You know? <laughs> Understand. But, uh, um, yeah, like MN is the maneuver factor, and then next to it is a button for R, which is robustness. So you use the maneuver factor when you're maneuvering um, or being maneuvered against. Uh, you use the robustness if the maneuver you pulled or the maneuver the enemy pulled, they're now attacking you. So you have to use the robustness as a negative modifier. Um, so you have a better chance of moving up into a damaged or destroyed count versus just a stress count. Um, so again, it's a real simple, real simple mechanic uh, that's on all the cards. Um, so you don't have to look everything up. It's, it's right there and it becomes really second nature to make the, make the changes. Well, Chris, I mean, you understand that from having played Corsair leader. Oh, oh wait. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Dude, dude, in my defense, it's been a busy summer. And when a box <laughs> that you didn't order shows up in your mailbox, which was very appreciated because it was an expensive box. In fact, I had to explain it to my wife because she looked at me and said, you bought another game. And I went, in my defense, no, I didn't. <laughs> it, it served dual purposes there. It got you in trouble with your wife. And I suddenly felt better about myself because I had not one, but two of those games coming my way. So so I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I have God, a lot more I, time I'm going to waste than Chris. <laughs> yeah, I want to play it so bad because when you get those campaign sheets out and you start looking through them and you start looking at all the air battles and you're just like, oh my God, I can play through all this stuff. This is going to be so much fun. And there's just all so many campaign sheets. And and that's one thing I wanted to ask Chuck, you know, how, how are the campaigns breaking out in zero leader? Because I'm, I'm just finishing Subaru Sakai's samurai book, which it, I can tell you is a great read. Everybody should read it if you're into World War II at all. Um, but I was fascinated with him talking about the zeros role. Uh, actually, it wasn't even a role. It was just a total shellacking um, of the Dutch at the Dutch East Indies and what a turkey shoot that was. And I'm wondering if you guys have some of those those earlier campaigns for the zeros that are planned in there also kind of like Corsair Leader kind of takes you soup to nuts from one end of Corsair to the other. Are you guys doing the same thing with um, with Zero Leader? Yes, uh, we definitely are. Matter of fact, the campaign that we've been using as a playtest campaign is the Port Moresby Lay um, campaign, which is basically Saburu Sakai's um, book. <laughs> so you're you've got zeros, G4M, uh, Bettys uh, that you can use to go and attack Port Moresby, and uh, you also have to defend against B25s. Uh, you got P40s, P39s, that type of thing. Um, give a little bit of a secret. One of the expansions that's going on is um, right now. I'm calling it the Far East expansion. So you're gonna you're gonna be uh, flying things like Nates and uh, the early Lily bomber, and you're going to be going up against the P-40s, the P-39s, maybe some others, but you're going to be facing the uh, American Volunteer Group, uh, basically the Flying Tigers, uh, th that type of stuff. So I am going to, the, the core game is going to be 1941 to 1945, but this expansion is going to kick us back to, say, 1939, 1940-ish. So there's a little bit of all of that. Um, in the early war types, uh, Pearl Harbor, Midway, that type of thing, the zero is dominant. There is no question about it. It's it's great. It's fun. You get to 44 and 45. Suddenly, you're fighting. You're fighting for your life. And um, another mechanic that maybe we can talk about later. Pardon the pun, but uh, start getting into the maintenance and different things. That also reflects it. But yeah, I've got the the really good early campaigns. Um, Saburai Sakai and uh, some other aces uh, will be showing up in an aces deck so you'll have an opportunity to fly them besides the uh, hundred and some we've got already did you find yourself having to um as you kind of work through these campaigns was it a little difficult to build the custom bandit list or you know, the, the I saw in a couple of the, you know, changing the sights out, pulling out a couple of the five inch guns, you know, changing some of those things. How how was it for you sculpting the threat? And and kind of the reason I ask is, you know, working with Kevin on a couple different campaigns, that has been one of the the most at least frustrating pieces is to how to make it seamless 
for the person to set up a campaign, but they realize they have to pull out a bunch of different chits that don't apply for, for that uh, specific campaign. Right. And that's, we've tried to keep that to a minimum. Uh, that is the one thing we do do is the naval because uh, all the other bandits and all the other sites are year coded. So in other words, you, you only get certain bandits in 41 versus 43 versus 44, but the naval are just there. So the one thing I wanted to do, because early in the war, the Americans hadn't figured out anti-aircraft was important, so they didn't have quite as much. And the best way to do it was to knock off some five inch guns. So that is the one adjustment you have to make at the start. You do have to take out uh, some five inch guns from the, from the site list, the naval site list in the early campaigns. Um, we were going to do that as far as the starting squadrons were concerned and decided that, like you said, we don't want to have you pick and choose and have to subtract and have to plus. So I just came out with a different starting squadron in 41 and 42, then we got the base starting squadron in 43, and then a different starting squadron in 44 and 45, reflecting the different strengths as far as the pilots are concerned. You've got much, a much stronger squadron in 41 and 42 than you do in 45. Yeah, because I think one of the toughest things, uh, at least in the leader series from the game design side, not that I've designed a leader game because I haven't, uh, but when you look at it and you look at some of the mechanics to design a scenario or campaign and you sit there and you say, all right, I need to provide some kind of granularity to the pilots, the aircraft that you're receiving, but the game or one of the biggest hurdles getting into the game was the first time you set it up. And then once you learned, okay, here's here's where all my chits for, and I'll use Phantom Leader as an example, uh, for approach areas go in, here's where my chits for threats go in. Uh, I know what I have to pull because it says we're doing South Vietnam, so pull all the bandits out. That's really, you know, or any bandit result, you don't you don't pull bandit chits. Um, but uh, it, it's that's one of those things that you could really go down a rabbit hole where all of a sudden you're customizing the threat to make it uh, really representative of the theater, but I think that's something that's not necessarily always desired in a leader game. Because, you know, I'm playing through Phantom Leader, it's funny how in South Vietnam, all of a sudden I have 120 millimeter anti-aircraft radar guided <laughs> AAA coming up at me sometimes. And I go, that's just, oh, that's frustrating. But it's just the way the system is built. Leave the threats in uh, and then, uh, you know, see how the dice, uh, how you survive with the dice. Well, exactly. One of the things... You know, Kevin and I talk about that all the time. We're not trying to make a simulation. Um, we're not trying to make something that it takes you six months to read the uh, rule book and then you have to sit there and set everything up and move everything correctly. We want to make a realistic, accurate, historical, fun game. So there are a couple of, for lack of better words, assumptions, and there are a couple of um, historical maybe inaccuracies but the key is that they're they're not major and they're not anything that you have to spend a lot of time to correct when it doesn't really change the play of the game um, I mean do you have a 90 millimeter gun here like you you mentioned that one do you really have that kind of gun there no but you have other guns this is just a a threat representation basically so you you know it's it's more of a um, abstracted sort of situation you, you put a name to it but it's an abstract for these are really buggers for anti-aircraft and these aren't so tough you know depending upon what you're running into um, so it, it we've 
struggled very hard to make sure that the game doesn't just add a lot of complexity if that complexity is not necessarily good for the gameplay, if that makes any sense. Yeah, no, it does. You know, one of the funniest uh, discussions that uh, Kevin and I had as I was you know working on some campaigns for Phantom Leader uh, was I I got to this point I'm like I'm like Kev what, what'd you guys do there are no 37 millimeter triple a pieces in Phantom Leader <laughs> I'm like I'm like what am I supposed to do man I, I'm now going to use s60s as as a surrogate so you know it's it's kind of funny just the things you have to generalize when you're working through it and you go you know I got it if if some grognard wants to complain that the caliber of the AAA pieces is wrong on the counter. Dude, I'm just simulating that there's a much more threatening piece than small arms fire, you know, and, and things like that. So it's a, it's an interesting compromise you have to make. And I think it works well in the leader games because, you know, for while Dan and, and Kevin may, you know, grit their teeth when I say it, the, the nice thing about the leader game is you walk in the door and you kind of you kind of can check your aviation knowledge and your aviation experience because it isn't about a simulation, like you said. It's about in a sense, telling a story, letting you try to survive through the campaign and, and feel the difficulty or the relative frustration uh, at that phase in the war, whether it's, okay, the frustration is I don't have enough of my own assets, but the enemy's easy to beat up, or hey, it's late in the war, and not only do I have no assets, I have no pilots, and the enemy's airplanes are pretty darn good. So I think that'll be really interesting for Zero Leader. And that's, that's it exactly. Uh, we didn't want to get so crunchy that you know uh, it, it's not any fun we wanted it to be crunchy enough that hey this is really realistic you know i mean running up a, with a zero especially an a6m2 early war zero against a late p51 or a p38 or something like that quite honestly it's a lot of fun but it's not very much fun because it's it's a tough it's a tough tough battle without being all you know, well, the 38 couldn't quite turn that quick and do all this kind of stuff. No, it's just, it can turn and it can do this. And we, we had to do some abstracting, but I really, really believe that it works. And in my game, a little different than Corsair Leader, um, but it, it's kind of funny because Corsair Leader works perfectly representing the American Navy in World War II. They had... From the get-go, they had plenty of supplies, they had plenty of people, they had plenty of parts, they had excellent facilities. Well, the Japanese at the start had good facilities, they had plenty of people, they were a little light on parts, that kind of stuff. But by the end of the war, the Japanese are really scrimping and saving and trying to get their airplanes going. So I have put that into this game so that you don't... You don't really realize it, but it's it's much tougher to play the Japanese later in the war. But it is not impossible. The the toughest campaign I've got in the in the game is the Home Island Defense. It's 1945. You got a tremendous selection of aircraft to fly, but you're you're facing the worst. You're facing the worst the Americans can throw at you. Your pilots are getting replaced by green pilots or whatever. Um, so if you lose a pilot, any of your reinforcement pilots are going to be of a poor quality. Uh, it, it's just, by the end of that campaign, the last time I play-tested it, quite honestly, after turn five, I was ready to just chuck the game off the table because I had just gotten my tail end handed to me by a battleship, and I'm like, I, I can't finish 12, 12 missions, but I struggled through, much like the Japanese did, and it was so much fun. And by the 12th 
mission, I had pulled out an average or adequate result, which, quite honestly, I was very, very happy with the way the game started at first with my target choices and my poor shaking. Well, let's talk about the target choices, because I think that is something that is very different from the modern series. And I, and I have not played Corsair Leader, so it's hard for me to speak to it. But all of a sudden, rather than Hornet Leader and Phantom Leader, where you have multi-role aircraft and multi-role aircraft that really you can you can designate to be the main strikers, part of the story of Zero Leader is protecting the bombers and getting the Bettys in there in uh, some of the scenarios and, and using them to strike the target, uh, which which is kind of a little bit of a different mindset from the way support aircraft have been used in the other series, where the, the support aircraft are there to do specific roles and missions. They're there to jam for you. They're there to shoot anti-radiation missiles. Here, they're, they're kind of the way you're going to kill the target. Am I right? Well, that's exactly correct. Um, I mean, the Zero is capable of carrying like a 250 or 500-pound bomb, but your pilot wasn't trained for that. They, these pilots were trained to clear the skies, they were trained to protect the bombers and uh, basically eliminate any aerial threat. The, the bombers, they're, they're set to go through, they carry the ordnance, um, they go in and actually have to take care of the target and knock out the sights. So there is a really good division of labor. Um, later on in the campaign, depending upon your choices, you may be pressed and have to actually have a zero carry a bomb. But uh, that's, not, that's not what you look forward to. You want your Zeros out there. You want them dealing with all the enemy bandits coming at you, um, picking them off before they get a shot at the bombers. And uh, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough road to hold, but it certainly, is, it certainly is doable, especially early war, the Zero beating up on some F2F um, buffaloes. I mean, it's, it, it's, a lot of, it's a lot of fun to do that, but that's their job. That's their goal. And... They're pretty good at it. Did you find yourself having to tweak the construct of, as I laugh every time I say it in a DVG leaders game, of the squadron? Because I don't know any goddamn squadron out there that's got a mixture of F-4 Phantoms and F-105s and, <laughs> and RB-66s. But did you, did you have to tweak that construct a little? Because, you know, once again, in some of the modern games, it's fairly straightforward because your primary aircraft can do multiple missions and your mindset is, okay... I got to do some air to air, so I'm just going to change the weapons load. Whereas, I'm sure you've got some sweep or some some air to air heavy uh, kind of missions out there. How does that work when when some of your aircraft that you have to use in certain missions are such specialized, you know, single role bombers, uh, heavy aircraft like that? Well, that makes your squadron selection far more difficult because. You don't oh, thanks. Have... I already suck at it. As it is. <laughs> you just <laughs> well, made my life it, more difficult. Really... Thank you. Well, it really does. Like in Phantom Leader, if you have 10 aircraft for a, a medium campaign, you have 10 aircraft. Like you said, you've got eight or nine that are flexible that can do a bunch of different Absolutely. things. Well, in Zero Leader, if you have 10 aircraft, now you're deciding, do I do four fighters and six bombers? Do I do five and five? How do I do that? How do I break that up? Because, again, the Zero is capable of it, but with the pilot stats and everything else, the Zero is not going to be a very good bomb-carrying machine. Now, later in the war, the fighter, the fighter aircraft were actually used to deliver ordnance sometimes because they were the only ones that could get through the, the screens and that type of stuff. So their pilots reflect that. Their pilots are a little bit more, um, not quite as 
high air to air and a little bit higher air to ground, but you still need to separate, you need, you need to determine with your squadron how many of these bombers am I going to use, how many of these fighters am I going to use. And it's just one of the many very, very important decisions that you need to make in Zero Leader that, quite honestly, you didn't have to make in a lot of the other games because even in Corsair Leader, I mean, the F4F Wildcat, although my F4F Wildcat that I fly, that I couldn't hit the ocean with a bomb, but most of them are capable of doing air-to-ground attacks almost as well as they do air-to-air -air attacks. And that's not 100% true of the pilots in Zero Leader because it's their training and their mission and the way the aircraft are built. So that is a, that is a decision that you get to make and you have to live with when you um, have a fleet carrier show up on mission number eight of a long campaign and all your Bettys are no longer flying for you and now what am I going to do? And This is where Kamikaze starts to come in because there it doesn't matter what kind of aircraft you're using. Yeah, yeah, you, you've got a fixed amount of ordnance there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, you can carry extra ordnance and you can, you can use your um, either one, your air-to-air -air or your air-to-ground uh, modifier, either one of those you can use when you're doing uh, kamikaze. So if you can get through to the target, you can, even if you're a great air-to-air -air and a terrible air-to-ground, you can still do a good kamikaze flying an A6M2. You'll do more damage with a Betty, but you can you can you can do some pretty good damage with an A6M2 in the kamikaze. Well, so let's talk a little bit about how the the grading of the aircraft uh, goes on because you know you come from a lot of the other series of, of games and you're used to kind of having a, a fairly fixed choice. Um, there's a lot of what I'll call esoteric aircraft, like in in Phantom Leader Deluxe, where sure I can fly an F-104 because guess what they did cast missions in Vietnam. Uh, but I, I've never tried to do the Southeast <laughs> or the South Vietnam <laughs> cast mission uh, scenario with uh, with the F-104s. Um, but, you know, you, you could do some of those things. How how was it for you guys trying to script that into the campaigns, but still give people a little bit of choice where you could say, all right, you can you can go fly some of these more interceptor like type aircraft uh, because they're available to you in, in this campaign. Um, but we're not going to totally change the way that that the war was written, and they're not going to be out there fighting the B-29s because uh, they just they, they weren't up there at altitude on some of the missions. Right, and, and the, like the B-29 later on, um, although they did get some low-altitude missions in, when they were originally up at 30,000 feet, the Japanese had a huge problem going after them, and most of their fighters don't. I reflect that like with the B-29, where most of your bandits and bombers, one hit and they're, they're destroyed. The B-29 actually takes two hits to destroy. So it's not something that you can just walk up to with an A6M2 and, and shake a 10 and, ooh, I killed a B-29. It's going to take a little bit of work to kill a B-29, and they're nasty firing back at you too, by the way. So what we did is I looked at the, the time of year, what type of aircraft were available, who was historically there and everything else, and basically gave the player the choice. These were the aircraft that were there, these are the aircraft that were available, and your choice to fly them. Now, one of the determining factors, some people will not mix Army and Navy, because the Japanese Army and Navy, to say that they hated each other is really an understatement. They refused to cooperate, no matter what, they refused to cooperate. So, 
Some of these campaigns have Army planes and Navy planes, and you get the option, if you want to fly just Army, you actually gain some SO because the Army planes weren't of the quality. Uh, later in the war, a couple were getting there, but they weren't of the quality. The pilots weren't of the quality, that kind of stuff. So you gain some SOs if you fly them. And some of the later war aircraft, because they are so good, actually cost you SO to buy. So you've got a little bit of a limiting factor. Yeah, I can get this hot rod aircraft, but that's going to cost me a couple SO, which I could have used for something else, maybe a mechanic or something like that. So there, there is that balancing act, but I tried to make sure that, except for some of the very, I mean, I had to draw the line somewhere, right? But um, except for some of the very limited aircraft that were available in the war, I try to put whatever aircraft were available, were actually flying in that campaign area. I try to make them available for the, the player to use. I just think that makes it a lot more fun that you can go out there and you can fly a Zero or you can fly an Oscar. It's totally up to you. There's no right, there's no wrong. If you want to mix the squadrons, it's not historical, but it's a lot of fun. I can tell you that. Well, before we dig into maintenance and supply, my favorite topic of endeavors, uh, Brett, did you have any uh, questions you wanted to throw out? Or are you just sitting there going, this is aviation again, and I'm just a ranger, man. I just, I just want a gun to shoot somebody. <laughs> well, I do think that there's a lot I want to dig into for the, uh, I think there's a lot, like Chris suggested, that could be great inspiration for the campaign play. So I, I'm really interested in checking all that out, because I think once uh, Steve and I get into doing maybe a Pacific campaign, man, I got to I gotta incorporate some of that into our gameplay. Yeah, you guys are getting pretty close on that uh, campaign, um, what I want to call it, source book, <laughs> I guess, is what uh, what we can call that for Blood Red Skies. Yeah, it's been a labor of love. We've been steady at it uh, lots of hours. We're getting together again tomorrow night, so. Well, I know you guys have uh, similar constructs for maintenance, supply, for some, some things that can go awry uh, when, you, uh, when you have your aircraft returned to base. Uh, Chuck, I am so happy to see this back in the leader series because, quite frankly, it's something that I felt has been missing since the original Hornet leader. Um, maybe it just comes from being a squadron maintenance officer and the daily grind of, of taking airplanes from the red side of the board and getting them on the green side of the board. Uh, and probably was because I had, you know, absolutely worthless ground supply officers, so I couldn't get paper for my printers or, or ink cartridges. Right, I wasn't an officer then. <laughs> I know you weren't. <laughs> you you, you can't were blame me for that. I was exactly. an enlisted dude. So <laughs> it's all your fault. You didn't file the supply <laughs> requisitions in the proper triplicate. But I no. have nothing to do with aircraft parts, man. Don't don't lay that one in my door. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, yeah, you never delivered us any aircraft parts in Afghanistan, but you brought us, let's see, folding knives. What other useless crap did I dude, get? Dude, I got. Got you everything oh, I got, I I got Gore-Tex that I didn't need because I lived in a freaking tent. Uh, it's thanks, called man. trading, man. Radar O'Reilly. <laughs> it's the way logistics works in combat, dude. <laughs> you get what you can get. And you trade for what you need. <laughs> you gave away all my computers and I got mountain boots instead. Thanks, man. That's what I need as a staff officer living in a, in a tent. Not so much. I need a freaking computer that works. An LCD screen, damn it. Anyway, so so we we digress there, Chuck. How did you how did you bring maintenance back in? How did you first of all sell the DVG construct uh, on bringing maintenance back, and then uh, then how did you model that? Okay, yeah. What I the whole thing is, is the the big picture is I wanted the player to get the feeling that you are not just able to throw. 15 aircraft at whatever target or do whatever you want to do and 
who cares if a plane comes back damaged? Who cares? You know, you just it just is magically gets fixed by the ferries and it's ready to go the next morning at no cost or anything like that. And I was like, mm, how am I going to do this? And I started to think about it and I looked at the uh, carrier operations and the airfield operations option for Corsair Leader. And I thought, you know, this is a great idea, but for the American side, it works great. You know, you get five maintenance guys and they're, they're supermen. I mean, they can, they can do everything, which kind of reflects the American situation. So I narrowed it down. I give you a lot less maintenance uh, counters, maintenance crews to work with. In my case, going back to that Port Moresby uh, campaign, you only start with two uh, maintenance crews. And each maintenance crew is more limited to what they can perform overnight versus the maintenance crews in Corsair Leader. Because honestly, the maintenance airfield operations and whatever, it basically was just, in my, in my humble opinion, it was just a lot of uh, bedazzlement and a lot of unnecessary um, stuff that really didn't change the game because with five maintenance guys that can fix three aircraft overnight, you could literally 15 aircraft and there are no targets that allow you to fly 15 aircraft, but you can you can fix 15 aircraft um, overnight. Well, that's nice, but it really isn't very reflective of what really happens. So in my situation, Port Moresby, you get two uh, maintenance crews. Each crew overnight can only take off two maintenance needed, or they can fix one minor damage, or both of them working together can fix one damaged aircraft. So let's say you send out a, a mission of four aircraft and they come back. All four have maintenance needed now, but one of them is damaged. So what are you going to do if you only have two maintenance crews? You can take all four maintenance needed off, but you still have one of your aircraft sitting there damaged. Or you can repair that damaged aircraft, but now all four are sitting there with maintenance needed. Um, or combination thereof, take two of the maintenance needed off, and half of the damage, you know, get it down to a minor damage so one guy can fix it. I feel like you've night. reduced the no. nightmare of a year of my life to a couple chits encounters. <laughs> but that's a good thing. That's a good thing. No, no one needs to have the uh, the worry of, am I out for supply or out for maintenance or why is this airplane not being fixed? It's uh, It still needs to be a little bit of a shell game of, of assets to requirements. And I and I think from everything I've seen, because once again, I have not been in the play testing, um, I, it seemed like it, it adds a lot of the decision matrix to to some of the, the tougher parts of it where it's no longer, am I just throwing uh, good or bad pilots at the mission? It's now, am I throwing good or bad or even enough uh, airplanes of a specific type at the mission? Well, exactly. Which, am I throwing enough of the specific type of the mission? Am I going to be able to repair the aircraft that come back to be ready for the next mission? So admittedly, when you, do a, when you do a short campaign, for most of the uh, campaigns, when you do a short one, maintenance really isn't that big of an issue. But when you start getting into medium campaigns, you start to feel that crunch towards the end of the campaign. You might have a couple airplanes that are sitting on the side or whatever. And when you go to a long campaign, you're feeling that crunch from middle of that campaign on. You're starting to realize, yeah, this target, I could send eight aircraft, but... 
I can't fix eight aircraft. I can't have those. I, I can't have those eight aircraft ready to go again tomorrow. So maybe I only send five aircraft out here so that I can repair them and get them ready to go. Uh, assuming they're all going to come back not damaged. You name it. And then just to add a little bit more fun to it, I have a um, on some of the targets rather than you know like the B-25s. If the B-25s get through, if you don't destroy all the B-25s that are coming at you, uh, you will lose maybe a maintenance crew. One of your maintenance crews get destroyed or two of your aircraft that didn't fly in that mission get damaged because that B-25 got through and dropped bombs. So there's an awful lot going on that is just additional layers to the game that only take you five, five minutes 10 minutes to um, resolve, but they, they take some thinking and they take some decision making in order to actually figure out how am I going to resolve it. Well, I think that's going to be interesting. And, you know, hopefully, are they considering backfitting some of that maybe via an expansion to Phantom Leader and Hornet Leader? Um, I can't speak for Phantom or Hornet. Uh, we haven't really talked about that. Well, um, will Kevin we Verson get off your ass and backfit it? Exactly. <laughs> and don't ask me to write the rules. <laughs> Make Chuck do it. Yeah, he, he acts like he works exactly. for a big company. He should be just paying attention to my exactly. game. Exactly. Darn it, do everything we ask. But uh, I'm telling you, obviously I don't rate high in his book. But we, we do our best. But we have had discussions as far as Corsair Leader. Um, one of the things that I did when I, I'm working on the bridge uh, rules, which allows... Zero leader to be played head-to-head -head against Corsair leader. Um, so it's like, well, what do I do? Because Corsair leader doesn't have any of this maneuver right, or do anything right. like that. Which, um, it really boils down to you're playing two games. The player A is playing Corsair leader. I'm just, rather than playing against the artificial intelligence, I'm playing the uh, bandits and the enemy bombers and doing all that kind of stuff. And I'm playing zero leader and the the person playing Corsair leader is doing my bandits and everything else. So not having the maneuver factors and the robustness factors and everything else for it are really not, uh, you know, that's not a, a handicap to making the games uh, bridge. But that is a conversation for in the future. Um, if everybody likes the maneuver and the robustness and those other things that I've added to this, there is conversation about in the future um, upgrading Corsair leader to zero leader and actually doing adding maneuver factors, robustness factors, and pilot aggression, which is another thing we haven't talked about, but that's another thing that's in zero leader. Um, adding these types of things to Corsair leader um, basically would just require we'd have to do new cards because we have we have to change those three stats have to be added and a lot of other things that really are different between zero and Corsair that nobody knows about. But uh, so there is some talk about that, and we haven't really talked about Phantom or anything like that. I think Kevin likes the maneuver and the robustness uh, enough that I really do believe. I know some of the there's a World War One leader being worked on, Sopwith Camel uh, leader, and I know he's got maneuver and robustness. I'm not sure he calls him that, but he's got maneuver and robustness going into that game and different things too. So um, hopefully it's going to be as great of a mechanic as I think it is. I think it just adds so much to the game and separates those aircraft. So um, there is there is the possibility that uh, in the future Corsair Leader, I believe, I, I, I know 
what I'm thinking about in the future, different games that I'm thinking about, uh, they will definitely have maneuver and robustness and aggressiveness included in their stats too. Yeah, I, th I think if I had to pick something that, I guess I'll call it frustrating for lack of a better term, that, that there is such an evolution to the leader series and you can see when things were backfit and went from Hornet carrier operations, you know, on to more, you know, newer versions. And, and there's, there's always going to be a little bit of lag as the system evolves and the, the team at DVG says, okay, we like that mechanic. Let's keep that mechanic in this leader game, knowing full well, it could be backfit. But then at what point do you get to saying, okay, are you ready for Corsair leader expansion deck number four, which is all new, <laughs> you know, us cards. Um, and, and that's obviously both a business and gaming kind of decision is, is do you, do you change and do you add some of those things? Cause you, you are adding more crunchiness in a sense. And people do like the leader series because it is so simple and so straightforward um, that, that there's always a little bit of a risk there, I think. But I, th I think it's something that, that we may see over time. Um, and, and I'll be honest when I say I'm surprised at the explosion of the leader series uh, because it, it seems like we're now covering pretty much every area that anyone has ever fantasized about putting onto a game board <laughs> for a solitaire game, Spruance and Sleater. Um, but, uh, you know, I, th I think it's, it's going to be one of those things where there will still be some back and forth in, in how does supplies work? How does maintenance work? How does, you know, campaigns work that will continue to, to cause the, the leader series as a whole to evolve. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, you don't want to stay static. You know, the the idea it was one of the first things Kevin and I were talking about. We didn't want Zero Leader to just be Corsair Leader with uh, different pictures, that kind of stuff. And you don't want the Leader series as a series, especially the Air series, you don't want it to sit still. And you want it to, to get better and you want it to get to add little things. Um, without getting too crunchy, you know, you don't want it. You don't want to get it. It's it's not a simulation, and you don't want it to get to the point where um, you're, you're looking up stats on paper and you're you're digging through the rules for doing this and doing that. We don't want to get that. But on reverse, you know, we, you may didn't know, didn't want to think about maneuver and robustness when you did Corsair Leader because that big ad was the maneuvering and the dogfighting and that type of thing. So, you know, now you look back, maybe when you reprint Corsair Leader, do you reprint Corsair Leader with maneuver and robustness added? I don't know. That's a business decision by DVG. But, um, you know, you'll, you'll keep moving up. And each game is hopefully adding something to the Leader series, not just a different color box. I mean, it's actually a different game. It's something that makes it worthwhile for the consumer to, to spend their hard-earned money and say, yeah, this game, I want this game because this game is a, it's a compliment. It's not a, it's not a just a different box. It's, it's a completely different game that complements, that goes with this game and, and helps it and that type of thing. So that was the goal. And that's something that Kevin and I, again, we've been working really, really hard to make sure we pull off. So speaking of different colored box, I'm going to kick this rock over. Uh, one, Holy crap, my eyes are still bleeding from the red suggested box. And number two, how many uh, positive votes for red versus uh, the green box uh, covers have you had, roughly? <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty funny. Kevin and I have been, been laughing since I, since I posted that 
immediately it's like, well, did you change color of the boxes? And it turns out Kevin had an orange one that honestly never really saw the light of day. I saw it, I thought it was just a placeholder, and then it's like, yeah, no, we thought about this color. Yeah, nope. Um, so really, there's a lot of different votes and different things going on, but, you know, we had talked earlier about Dan. Yeah, Dan is sitting in his office throwing hand grenades at all the different color choices that we come out with. I can't, I had a really, really nice one, but it wasn't a leader-type box and different kinds of stuff. So, you know, Dan threw a hand grenade and said, this is what you've got to do. So, uh, Kevin and I actually are going to be talking on the phone tomorrow. We've got a long conversation scheduled, and that's one of the things we're going to tackle is the exact box color. Um, that red certainly does stand out. Um, I would like to mellow it down a little bit if we're going to stay with the red or... As we would say in the Marine Corps, it stands out like dog's balls. <laughs> you will not miss that on anyone's gaming shelf, but uh, uh, no, I'm no. not sure I like it as much as I liked the green. But, you know, once again, I mean, there's, there's a million different decisions as to which one to choose. Uh, I just, as soon as I saw the red one, I'm like, did my colors shift on my, on my phone here? Is that, is that really the same box art? <laughs> yeah, it's the exact same box art with a, a completely different hue. But... Um, if I if I posted the one that I that I personally very much like, it's got the rising sun in the background, and I think it's a gorgeous box, but it doesn't carry through the leader. If you look at all the leaders, they're all the same right, style, right. just different colors and that kind of stuff. So going with the uh, rising sun background, while I think it's gorgeous, red and white, I thought it was gorgeous, but it doesn't carry the leader series um, onward so that was a big concern of Dan's and so at this point right now the red is the box that's in the lead but honestly it's it's really it's 50 50 people like that that green box um, and the red box I, I was a very much fan of the green box and the red box is growing no I mean, no we're gonna see <laughs> <laughs> see and that's that's what I'm seeing and um, when we were actually having this conversation was over the weekend and I was up camping with my family and uh, I bounced the two of them off and believe it or not they were like 80% were for the red box they just felt that that was that was well you know, you're not going to win it in the court of internet public at, opinion and we all we all know that is is that no, no matter not. and I laughed nope. at the at those suggestions that immediately came out because nowhere was it a suggestion request it was hey here's the latest thing for zero liter and then everyone gives you their opinion on on uh, what color you got to make the box and so it's it's funny people will always take exception to it some people will like what you started with some people will like what you what you changed to um i i just ask that at least you get the right airplane for the paint job phantom leader hello with the wrong one in a navy paint job um but we won't cover that anymore uh but uh you know it it's interesting that some the level of detail some grognards go to we jokingly call them rivet counters as i'm sure you do uh, and then people start picking apart box art. <laughs> and you're like, don't you have anything better to do? Like, actually play a game. Tell me how the game plays. So, Yeah, well, that actually, you know, I love it. I, I love the interaction. I love dealing with people who are asking these questions and stuff. Because that shows that they're interested. It really does. But when you talk about the rivet counters, that's what we call them in model railroading, too. Um, but, you know, right away I got that, well, that zero isn't white. The zero is actually a gray. And then there was a whole long thread conversation on what shade of gray and doing different kinds of stuff, which I loved, but it was just kind of humorous because 
you know, it, it is a game. And the idea is when you get that picture, you get that print, that ink, things can change and whatever. The idea is you want a particular model of aircraft up there, but you don't necessarily need the mark. You know, it's an A6M221 or whatever it is. It's an A6M2, which could be an A6M5, you know what I'm saying? The idea was to get a, a zero up there that is instantly recognizable. When people see that, they go, oh yeah, that's a zero. That's, that was the idea of getting that up there, rather than putting like an Oscar or something like that on there. Uh, everybody recognizes the zero, and the rest of it is, is detail work, and, and it's very fun to talk to people. I love getting their opinions. I feel sad when some of them are opinions I cannot, you know, we cannot put into the game. Uh, because they're mechanics that won't work, or they're this type of thing, or that type of thing. But I love the idea that people are involved and asking the questions, because that does show that they're interested, and that's the most important thing. you got to be interested, because game doesn't do any good oh, if yeah, nobody's going to play it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It doesn't matter how smooth the mechanics are, how wonderful the counters are, how great the map boards are. If it's still no fun, uh, it just it's not going to inspire people to go pick it up, and the buzz isn't going to be there. And... Sounds to me like already pre-Kickstarter, the the buzz is is there at least. You guys are about to drop uh, the Kickstarter sometime next week, I think. Yep, it's coming out at uh, noon Pacific time on the 11th, uh, August 11th, Tuesday. So that's 2 o'clock my time. Um, <laughs> I won't be sleeping for at least 24, maybe 48 hours before that. You know, that's the thing. It's my, it's my first commercial game, and... Uh, I'm, I've got some serious uh, stress issues going on. If I, I told Kevin I am already into Shaken, and I'm yeah, maybe getting exactly. to unfit really, We may have really to replace soon. it pretty quick. So, Who are we going to find? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> That's exactly yeah. right. I need to buy some sake because I need, I need to bring my <laughs> stress levels down. But, uh, no, I'm super excited. It's, it's going to be Tuesday the 11th at noon Pacific time. It's going on, and... Um, working on some really cool, fun stretch goals and all that type of stuff. So I'm just really hoping that people are interested in it because it, it's it's fun. I I think it's fun. The people who have play tested it for me have thought that it's fun, and um, it's 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 just been a very exciting experience putting this together. Kevin and Sarah are fantastic people. I love dealing with them. They're a lot of fun. Uh, they take my uh, ideas and that type of stuff, and I can. If I was watching on video, I would just see Kevin shake his head, but he, he still comes back and talks nicely to me. Um, but we we work together super well. We have so much fun talking, you know, just, just like this interview. I'm having a blast talking with you guys, and all of a sudden I look up yeah. and I'm like, oh, I mean, we've been talking <laughs> I, I look up as, as the host and go, oh, crap, i got to wrap this one up. i gotta got to think of a, th a way to tie this together. Yeah. Well, well, here's, here's a quick question before we kind of tie things up at the very end. Uh, and it's always a crapshoot, I know, with with coronavirus and overseas productions and, and even at a, at a good time, it's hard to gauge the life cycle of a uh, Kickstarter game. What, what are you guys really shooting for? What do you think your, your end state delivery uh, timeline might be for people that say, okay, I think I'll pick it, pitch in for the Kickstarter. Um, cause, cause like we've, we're going on probably almost close to nine months. I want to say on the A10, uh, one, but obviously had coronavirus right in the beginning of that. Yeah, and hopefully coronavirus is going to be winding down here and we can move on. But and I also think that uh, DVG has learned all that kind of stuff. Right now we're using a tentative delivery date of January. Now one of the huge advantages is that my game is 
98-99% done. Um, a little bit more uh, proofreading, those types of things, but as far as the rules, the campaigns, doing all this kind of stuff, it, it's virtually done. So it's not going to take, okay, three, four, five months to finish putting this thing together before we even can start proofing and doing all that. It's, I'm in the, heavily into the proofing stage and uh, getting all of that put together. So there shouldn't be much of a delay after the Kickstarter ends before the game actually gets um, final proofed and sent off to the printers. And uh, right now, like I say, they're, they're aiming at January 21. We'll see how that goes, but that's the tentative date, excellent, January excellent. of 21. Well, Chris, Brett, any last-minute questions for the wrap-up? No, I'm good. I mean, this has been really informative, man. That sounds exciting. With the little bit of experience I had just messing around with um, with Phantom Leader, it sounds like this has you know, got a lot, of, a lot of interesting stuff in it for those interested in that period. Yeah, I think it. I think it'll be cool. Um, and Chuck, I, I really appreciate you coming on. I know this is not necessarily the long format uh, interview that uh, that you're necessarily used to. Uh, we wanted to hit a couple of the wave tops because uh, our listeners, you know, play such a, a wide esoteric <laughs> group of games out there. Uh, we wanted to make sure people at least you were getting all the all the updates and directly from the designer because you know Kevin and Sarah talked about it. They talked up the game, talked you up. Uh, and I said, I'd, well, then let's get Chuck on here, and he gets to make the sales pitch <laughs> for why I need yet another damn leader game on my shelf. Son of a no good. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Yeah, exactly. Well, one more. One huh? more. I can. I can. I can highly recommend one more for your for your shelf. But no, guys, I really, really appreciate you talking to me. You know, when you talk, it's a, a long format that I'm not used to. Quite honestly. Any format right now, I'm not used to. Most most people, including my wife, don't care for my opinion. But um, I do appreciate you giving me the time to come out here and talk about this game. And if you don't mind, I just want to give one second. I want to give a shout out to my daughter Trisha. She has been fantastic. I can't. I am not a computer geek in any way, shape, or form. She just took a uh, put together a video for me in just a couple hours that I think is just absolutely amazing. So I just want to give a shout out to my daughter, Trisha, and tell her thank you so much for all your help. And Kevin and Sarah, thank you guys for all your help. But uh, Doug, Chris, Brett, it, it's been a real, real good time talking here. And uh, I hope you guys uh, get into the Zero Absolutely. If people it. want to find out more, uh, what's the easiest way for them to track down the latest and greatest about Zero Leader? The easiest way is on Facebook, the DVG Zero Leader page. Um, that's where I first put all of the information, and then I will share that to the DVG fan page. Uh, so the DVG Games fan page, Solitaire um, Warfare, those types of Solitaire Gaming, those types of uh, things on Facebook. But the uh, DVG Zero Leader page is the best place to get the most up-to-date information because that's the first place I pay. So everybody go over there, have your eyes burned out by their bright red box. <laughs> no, that's awesome. Uh, that uh, That's a good amount of information for all of us. And thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for taking the time to talk about Zero Leader. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing how the Kickstarter goes and then seeing what the delivered product is. Thank you very much once again for all the time.